The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me ask you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. You heard Buddy read the text earlier in the service, so I won't be reading it again. But you can turn there to Philippians 2. This is a big Sunday in the life of the church. In fact, I've heard this Sunday often referred to as the the Super Bowl of the church, the church's Super Bowl. And I have to admit that I don't like that. Uh, I I, I just really don't like that. I probably have flippantly used that before, but the more I think about it, I don't like Easter being referred to as the church's Super Bowl. I'd rather the Super Bowl be referred to as the NFL's Easter. Um, But the more I think about that, I don't like that either. The reason is because it reduces Easter to just a moment on a calendar. Just a day that rolls around every year. Comes and goes with as much impact as 22 men chasing a pigskin air-filled bladder around a field for 60 minutes. For many, this is all that Easter is. For many, Easter is simply a date on a calendar that comes around once a year. It's an excuse to buy new clothes and color some eggs and eat some candy, which we'll take any excuse we can get to eat some candy, won't we? I hope that's not the only amen I get during the sermon. But for many, that's all it is. Simply a date on the calendar. Even if we look beyond the festivities to the reason, um, the actual resurrection itself, we often view it as really the end of the story. We come, to the, we come to Easter and we think, oh, it's finally done. Jesus looked like he was going to be done for and it would be over, but now he's come out of the tomb and end of story, amen. But the reality is it's not the end of the story. There is more to come, and we've sang about it all throughout the service, that He's coming again. He's coming to rule and to reign forever. And those who are His will rule and reign with Him and worship Him throughout all eternity. We can't wrap our minds around eternity. But Easter's not the end of the story. Neither is it the most really crucial part of the story. It's crucial But there's a whole lot that led up to it. The resurrection is a wonderful and essential part of the Christian faith. And without it, we are, as 1 Corinthians says, of all people, most to be pitied. But what happened that made the resurrection even a possibility? That's the question I want to ask today is, what led up to Easter? Not the event itself, not what's coming afterwards, but what happened before we led up to the empty tomb that made it possible? We celebrate the the life after the death, but very seldom do we look at the life that was before the death that led to life after death. And so this morning, today, I want us to celebrate Easter by realizing that His humility is our hope. Before we get to the empty tomb, I want us to push rewind on the story and go backwards. And I want us to look at the humility of Christ that led to the very fact that we can celebrate that the tomb is empty today. 
Without, without that humility, there is no hope for you and I. And so that's what I want us to see today. You heard Buddy read the text earlier. I won't read it for you again other than to read little snippets as we walk through this text. See, some things don't change. We come together on Easter Sunday and we still sing, to, sing praises to our God. We still open His Word because we need His Word more than breath itself. And so today we want to walk through His Word together. The Bible says that, uh, first of all, you and I have a problem. That as much as, as much as we want to have this mind that the text talks about, as much as we want to have this mind, we can't. Verse 5 says, have this mind in you. This mind. What is this mind? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations translate that, that was also seen in Christ. Or was also evident in Christ. What is this mind? Well, this mind refers back to the verses right before this in 2 through 4. And there in verses 2 through 4, let me simply read some of this to you. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we're to have this mind, and by the way, I believe this is a, really a command really for not just those who are in Christ, but for those also, this is an expectation of God for all people. And we fall miserably short. You ever tried to have this mind? You ever tried to set out to be unified? I'm not talking about just in the church, but even with the people in your life, in your home. You ever just try to say, okay, I'm going to be unified. I'm going to be agreeable. I'm going to have the same mind. You ever tried that? That always work out for you? We can't even agree on the level of firmness of the mattress, can we? We have to have sleep number beds that have individual air-filled chambers to where we can adjust the, 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 the sleep number. Yours may be a 70 and somebody else's is a 30. Your spouse, you can't agree on that. You ever set out to say, I'm going to, I'm going to love other people. I'm going to put their needs above my own. I want to be a person that is, that is caring more about others than I care about myself. You want to count others more significant than yourself. But there's just that one guy at work, in your office or on your floor, that just drives you crazy. And if it wasn't for him, you could do it, right? If it wasn't for her, you could do it, right? And the reality is, if it wasn't him or her, it would be someone else because the problem is not without, it's within. Maybe you're constantly looking out for the interests of others. You feel like you're constantly looking out for other people, but nobody's ever looking out for you. And sometimes you have a meltdown and a pity party, and in that moment, you blow it. Because you go from looking out for the interests of other people alone to now you've turned inward and you've become prideful and selfish and looking for your own interests. See, the reality is all of us have a problem because if God's Word tells us to have this mind in us, the reality is we can't. None of us can. This week, I did a horrible job at meeting the needs of my wife. I did a 
horrible job. You remember that sermon I preached a few weeks ago about crockpots and, and, and microwaves? My wife said to me, crockpot hasn't been turned on this week. I said, baby, I'm distracted this week. It's Easter. Give me a break. We, we can't do this. In fact, if we go beyond this, just beyond having this mind in ourselves, what about the rest of the expectations of God? What about the rest of His law? Let's, let's not even look at the rest of His law. Throw the Ten Commandments out and let's just look at this one, the one that sums them all up. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. How are you doing on that one? Have you always perfectly obeyed that command? I asked that question to some kids out at Abner Creek Academy this past week, and one little girl said, I have. The rest of the class began to snicker and laugh because they know, even they know, even kindergartners through fourth graders know that no one can obey perfectly the law of God. We weren't meant to. Oh, we were meant to, but since the fall, we can't. And the law simply is a tutor. It's simply a teacher that shows us our weakness and shows us our need of a Savior. The Bible says that none are righteous. Not one. Romans chapter 3 says, Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18, that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You know, that's, that's a reality that, that nobody on their own accord, unless God draws you to himself, you are not seeking after God. If you today are seeking after something to fill the void in your life, it is, I would say, because God himself is drawing you to himself. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible says that all of our righteousness, all of our right acts, all of our good works, are like filthy rags to God. What is is our goodness compared to the one who is infinitely holy, altogether separate, and without sin altogether? Not just without sin, but perfectly with goodness and love. 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. You you ever feel like this? You ever try to control your tongue? I mean, that one guy or that one woman in your office or on your floor, they are on your nerves, but you get up that morning and you say, okay, today, today, I'm going to watch my tongue and I'm going to speak with kindness to that person. And by lunchtime, you've called them everything under the sun. And you say, where does that come from? It comes from this sin that is in us. It comes from our first father, Adam. It's been passed to us. It is the nature, just as it's the nature of a dog to bark. It is the nature of human beings without Christ to sin. Their their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You may not be going out and physically slaying people. You may not be a literal murderer. But you know how quickly you are to walk towards sin. 
You know how in the depth of your soul, in the reality of your being, how quickly you migrate there. No matter how much you tell yourself, I'm not going there again, there is a pull toward that that is natural for you. It is a fight against that. In in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Some of you are here today and you are without Christ and you come to Easter and you put on the garb and you come and you celebrate because we're in the South and that's what you're supposed to do here. And the reality is in your life you have no peace whatsoever. The reason is you don't know Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. And when you've received the perfect love of what we're going to see in this text, there is peace that follows. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 6.23 says that because of Romans 3 is the reality of every person that none of us are righteous, none seek after God, all of us are sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, which means that what your wandering does is earns you death. Not just a physical death once and then everything's over and done with and you just go into a sleep never to think another thought again. But a second death where you die an eternal death separated from God forever. You may not have Christ in your life right now, unbeliever, but you are the beneficiary of His grace every single day. And you don't, you can't imagine the hell that is to come just by Him removing His presence from your life. We can't have this mind. This is our problem. As much as we want to, as much as we try to, we can't have this mind. But, Jesus, when He was God, had this mind. When Jesus was God. He had this mind. While He was God, He had this mind. Verses 6 and 7 say, though He was in the form of God. That word form is a word that means in every way like, identical to, equal to. This is a statement about the deity of Jesus. Jesus is not simply just a holy man. He's not simply just a good teacher. But He is God of very God. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the one who was worshipped throughout all of eternity by the angels and those saints that came to heaven. He is the one who is sitting on the throne now. He is the one who will be worshipped throughout the rest of eternity by all creation. Gordon Fee says it this way, that the one whom the early church had known as truly human Well, he had made himself known prior to them in in this human form, but his prior existence was in the form of God. Not meaning that he was like God, but really not, but that he was characterized by what was essential to being God. While he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What this means is that all power was his. All authority was his. That Jesus had existed before time had existed. And there came a moment in history where he decides to step out of heaven and come to you and I to rescue us from our problem. All power was his. All authority was his. He sat on the throne of heaven where he was worshipped by angels and they attended to his every desire. He lacked nothing. 
Hear me on this. He lacked nothing. He didn't come because he needed a relationship. He didn't come because he was lonely. He didn't come because he thought you'd make a great friend. He lacked nothing. There was no enemy that was his equal. No. No thing, no power was his equal. We don't live in a world where the good and the bad are always fighting against one another. We live in a world where there is the ultimate good, God himself, that is sovereign over all. And he is directing human history. There was no person, no place, no thing that was not his. That he couldn't use at his very beckoning. This is who we're talking about. That while he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped is a word that means to seize or to take or to steal. It can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be used when someone seizes or steals or takes something that is not theirs. But Jesus is God already. He doesn't need to take this thing. This is what Satan tried to do that got him thrown out of heaven. Jesus doesn't need to steal Godhood. Instead, what this text and what the next line will say to us is that He doesn't seize it or steal it or take it, but that He doesn't consider what He already has, something that He should steal away to Himself and hold on to and hoard. Instead, He looked at our predicament. He looked at our problem. He looked at you and I when we could not please God. When we were on the outside, when we had death coming to us, not the first death, but also the second death, He looked at us in our helpless state, did not consider all of His Godhood, all of what He had to be something that He should just hang on to for Himself and and hold on to that and, and leave us in our hopeless condition. But instead, He made Himself nothing. He laid aside every advantage. He never stopped being God, but He laid aside every advantage, every privilege, every prerogative. I don't know about you, but for those of us who grew up as teenagers in the late 80s, I can't hear the word prerogative without thinking of Bobby Brown. So now you'll be singing that song. It's my prerogative for the rest of the sermon, the rest of the day. But Jesus lays aside every divine prerogative. He never stops being God because when He walked on this earth, we saw His Godhood come through. We saw it when He walked on water. We saw it when He fed the multitudes. We saw it when He called blind men to see and lame men to walk. We saw it when He spoke to Lazarus in the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And after four days being dead, Lazarus comes out. We see it when Jesus knows the thoughts of men without them speaking. Jesus never stopped being God, but he never used those divine prerogatives or advantages or privileges for himself. It was never about personal gain. If it would have been, then when he was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him, turn these stones into bread, Jesus. Jesus could have very easily in that moment used that for personal gain and said, bread. But he makes himself nothing. The Bible says in verse 7, continuing on, taking the form of a servant. Now that's a word that doesn't capture the meaning. The word is literally slave. He took the form of a slave. Now notice he uses the word form again. Form of a slave. 
I told you earlier that when he uses form, it means exactly equal to. He was in the form of God. He was God of very God. But when he makes himself nothing and he comes to earth, he literally becomes a slave in every way. We see this in a couple of ways. Slaves owned nothing. John MacArthur points out that a slave owns nothing. Jesus, while he was on this earth, owned no land, no house, no gold or jewels, no business, no boat, no horse. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He borrowed a room to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. He even borrowed a tomb to be buried in when he was crucified. He owned nothing. He becomes a slave. He says to those who want to follow him, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I don't have a place to even lay my head. Second thing, though, about a slave that really is the more important point of him becoming a slave is that slaves were required to carry other people's burdens. They were required to do the work of other people. Jesus becomes the greatest burden carrier known to man. He carries the burden that all of us are faced with carrying ourselves if we don't allow him, if we don't trust in him, if we don't receive his carrying it for us. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I didn't plan on saying this, but this is pictured in Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac. Where Abraham takes his son at the command of God, go and sacrifice your son, the promised one. He takes Isaac and he says, carry the wood. And they go to that mountain. And Abraham has the knife. And Isaac looks at his father and says, Father, I, we have the wood, we have the altar, we have the knife, but where is the lamb? And Isaac is a picture of the one that would come after him. The lamb that would be provided. That would carry the sin of the world. The sin that you are so guilty of. That I am so guilty of. Every unrighteous deed. Every unrighteous thought. Every unrighteous attitude. Placed on him. Of all those who would believe. Jesus was born in the likeness of men, the Bible says. He became nothing. He made himself nothing. He, he became a slave to carry our sin burden. He was born in the likeness of men. He was born in our likeness, every way like us except one. He was born without sin. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. We can't imagine the horror of the infinitely holy one putting on even the likeness of sinful flesh. He himself was not sinful, but he came as one of us. He was tempted in all ways like we are tempted. And even when Jesus 
Even while he was God, he had this mind. He had this mind that was thinking of others before thinking of himself. That was of one accord with his Father. He had this mind. You have it. I have it. He had it while he was God. But what about when he came? What about as man? Well, Jesus had this mind when he became a man. Verse 8 says, and being found in the in human form. It was found in human form. It was uniquely fitted to represent us before God because he was God. He was man. He could represent us before God because he was one of us. And he could represent God to us because he was God. He is the perfect mediator. Imagine what it must have been like, though, for Jesus to be God, but only be recognized as a man. Imagine leaving heaven where you are worshipped by angels and saints. Where you've never, you've never known need. You've never been mocked at. You've never, you've never endured any of that. And coming to earth as a man and only be recognized as a man... If it were up to you and I, wouldn't you be tempted to say, don't you know who I am? But Jesus never says that. In fact, John 1.46, Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? To which Philip said, come and see. Mark 6.3, they, they, they said, is this not the carpenter's son? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus' own brothers didn't even recognize him. Imagine how hurtful that would be. Yet, the Bible says in verse 8, he humbled himself. To humble himself means that he took the lowest position or the lowest place by becoming obedient to the point of death. Listen, he became obedient to the point of death. This alone proves that he is God. Do you have a choice as to whether you will die or not? No. We don't know. We don't know when it will happen. But unless Jesus comes again before that, we will die. All of us will die. But only one who is divine could obediently choose to die. What this means is that Jesus could have walked away. He could have called the whole thing off. He prays in the garden of Gethsemane before he is arrested to the point of sweating drops of blood in agony. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. In that moment, he could have simply went away. He could have left his disciples wondering, where did he go? What happened? Where's Jesus? But instead, he stays in the garden. He's arrested there. He's brought and he's put on trial. He is abused beyond recognition. He is nailed to a cross. He gives up his last breath. And he dies. In an obedient act where he submits to the Father. He is of one accord with his Father. 
The Bible says in verse 8, even death on the cross. You see, this was the scandal. Because in that day, especially with the Jews, the Messiah would never, would never have been crucified on a cross. He would never have died, let alone be nailed to a tree. The Old Testament said that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so, this is the scandal. I want to read to you what Gordon Fee wrote about this in his commentary. It's sort of lengthy, so hang on my words. Here is where the one as equal with God has most fully revealed the truth about God. That God is love, and that love is expressed itself in self-sacrifice. Cruel, humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those He loves. The divine weakness, death at the hands of His creatures. Think about that. The ones He created are the ones that killed Him. He submits to that. The divine weakness is the divine scandal. The cross was, was reserved for slaves and insurrectionists. No one in Philippi, we must remind ourselves, used the cross as a symbol for their faith. There were no gold crosses embossed on Bibles or worn as pendants around the neck or lighted on the steeple of the local church. The cross was God's and thus their scandal. God's contradiction to human wisdom and power. That the one they worshipped as the Lord of all, including Caesar, had been crucified as a state criminal at the hands of one, one of Caesar's proconsuls. That the Almighty should appear in human dress and that He should do so in this way as a Messiah who died by crucifixion. This is the humility of Christ. Jesus had this mind that He commands while He was God. And He had this mind when He became a man. Going all the way to the cross. Therefore, we'll close on these last Three verses in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, Jesus is in a class all by himself. Because he had this mind perfectly while he was God and when he became man, he's in a class all by himself. He is, in verse 9, exalted by God the Father. He has been given the name that is above every other name. Even though it's not mentioned here, the resurrection is in plain view right here. When the Bible says that God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, you you can't get to that place without realizing that God raised Him from the dead. When Jesus showed Himself to 500 eyewitnesses after He was raised from the dead, there was only one conclusion that they could draw, and that was that God the Father must have been so incredibly, entirely pleased with Him His humility, the way He expressed the character of God, His paying for the sin of the world, carrying that burden, that God the Father raised Him from the dead. The law was finally fulfilled. God's wrath was finally satisfied. Tim Keller says, the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. Jesus may have entered human history as a slave, but he departed as Lord. The name that is given to him that is above every name is the name Lord. That at the name of Jesus, every knee 
will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. As a result of His humbling Himself, His humility, He's in a class all by Himself. He is exalted by God the Father, raised from the dead, given the name Lord, the name that was reserved only for God. And by God giving Jesus that name, He is saying, just as He said at His baptism, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. When God the Father gives Jesus the name Lord, He is saying He is in every way equal. He is God of very God. He's not bestowing on Him something that He never had. He's not giving Him a reward. He is vindicating what He did. When Jesus steps out of heaven, leaves it all, doesn't consider His equality with God something to be grasped, but makes Himself nothing and takes the form of a slave, born in the likeness of men, God says it wasn't for nothing. You may have thought that he was only a man. You may have thought that he was to be despised. You may have thought that no one would ever come from Nazareth. You may have thought that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And God the Father says, He is Lord. Not only does God exalt him, but the Bible then says, He is worshipped by all creation. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The Bible says that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There is no, there is no set of knees anywhere that will not bow. The Bible says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The reality is, hear me on this, and I'm going off my my notes here for just a minute. The reality is this. You may be here today and you may think, this is all foolishness. But I'm telling you on the authority of God's word, you may say that now, but there will come a day when you will kneel and confess Him as Lord. And you may get mad at me for saying that, but if it's reality, it's reality. I don't say it out of hatred or or pride that I have something that you don't. I say this out of love for you. Love that is willing to wound you if necessary to get you to see your need of Him. Because in that day when every knee bows and every tongue confess, there will be those that will be saints throughout all the ages that have gone on before us, or if He comes while we are alive, we will join with them and we will kneel and we will confess that He is Lord. But there will also be a second group who refused to confess Him as Lord. They will also kneel and confess, but it will not be a confession of conversion. In that moment, it will be too late. He's not in that moment a benevolent grandfather that just can't, can't stand to see anyone go out. He came humbly the first time, but He will not come humbly the second time. And you have an opportunity here today. You have an opportunity here in this life, right now, to turn away from your hopeless condition, to turn away from your sinfulness, to turn away from your position that we read about in in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, no, not one. You have an opportunity right now to turn away from that and to look square into the work and the life 
of Jesus Christ. That while he was God, he had this mind. While he was man, he had this mind. And you have an opportunity to, right now, confess him as Lord. To receive forgiveness in his name. To have life everlasting. The Bible says, I prayed this this morning, that his sheep know his voice. And I'm praying today that you would hear his voice. And that you would come. His humility is our hope. His humility is our only hope. I shared with you earlier Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We want to give you an opportunity today to respond to that invitation. The gospel is this. You have a problem. You're a sinner. And one day you will stand before a holy God who is infinitely holy and altogether just. And because he is infinitely holy and altogether just, he will not let one sin go unpunished. And you can either stand in your own sinfulness and shake your fist in the face of God and say, how dare you? Who are you to judge me? You have no right to tell me anything. Or you can bow in your heart and place yourself under the one who bore that burden for you. The one who took your debt onto himself. That has paid it all. Who has been punished for you and has given you his righteousness. His humility is our hope. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, today we come to Easter and we celebrate that the tomb is empty. But God, don't ever let us lose sight of the fact of all that took place, of all that transpired, that all that you have done, you and you alone, of your own merit, of your own volition, have done to reconcile us to you. That even in the end, Jesus... Even when you're exalted by the Father and you're worshipped by all creation, you even in the end have this mind in you that all of the praise and all of the glory is going back to the Father. God, today I pray that in this room, Lord, that you would call people to yourself. That the word that has been preached, God, would be applied by the Spirit Call people out of death and into life. Do it for your own glory, I pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to what you've heard today. You may want to sit quietly while Ethan is playing. and begin sing, He's beginning to lead us to sing and respond. You may want to sit quietly and, and think on these things and pray. You may want to, right where you are, ask God, God, what does this mean for me? What does this require? You may not have time to wait. You may know right now what you have to do.
I'm going to be sitting right down here. And if you're here today and you're lost and you know you're lost, you're without hope, you're still in that, that Romans chapter 3 position. But you know that you need to be saved and today you want to confess Him as Lord, then I'll be sitting right down here. Don't wait for me to get up and stand and turn and look back at you because I'm not going to do it. Jesus said that if you're ashamed to confess him before others, that he won't confess you before his Father, well, he wants you to come. There's nothing magical about coming and walking this aisle. If you're counting on walking an aisle, either today or sometime in your past, to make you right with God, then you've missed the entire gospel altogether. If you're counting on being baptized to make you right with God, then you've missed the gospel altogether. Water doesn't save you. Water makes you wet. But if today you are willing to forsake yourself and your sinfulness and to cast yourself on the humility and the work of Christ as your only hope of being right with God, as your only hope of being forgiven and being saved, then today come. And I would love to walk with you through that. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, people would ask the disciples, what must we do to be saved? And that's all I'm here for. If you need to come and ask somebody, what have I got to do to be saved? I'd be glad to talk to you. I'd be glad to walk you through that. There are people in this room who would be glad to talk to you about that. Maybe you came with somebody. Maybe, maybe you found out somebody's been praying for you. Maybe you want to just go to them and say, this makes sense and this is what I have to do. Let them help you. If, if, if they need to, they'll bring you to me or they'll bring you to somebody else. But there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And you have an opportunity right now to beat him to the punch. Let's respond to God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.